What do you desire? I mean, at the foundation of your life, in your core, what's most important? What do you want? You know, desire is a common factor of the human experience. It's the energy behind so many things that inspire, but also that can destroy. Desire can lead us to dismantle our lives. It can also lead us to holiness and fulfillment. I don't know if you've heard about this, but we're in the midst of something called the Great Resignation. You heard that? People leaving their jobs by the millions. They've come through pandemic. They've faced stress, burnout, complete upheaval in their lives. Maybe you're one of these. I mean, we're all, we've all been in that place. We're all in the, swimming in the same water, aren't we? But some have responded in this way. They're saying, what I desired before, I no longer want. I've seen life in a new way. I have a fresh perspective. And it has been brought about by the struggles of the pandemic. I'm not going back to that. I want something else. I want something more true and life-giving. Corporations, employers, they're faced with challenges they've never had because employees are no longer willing to sell their souls to earn a paycheck. They have a new desire. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark in this season of ordinary time, and we've heard about the things people want. We've heard the disciples talk about their desire to be the greatest. Remember, they didn't want competition from someone else who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. We met the man who wanted to inherit eternal life, but he wanted his stuff more. And now, James and John. These thunderous sons of Zebedee declare without any sense of shame their desire for elevated positions when Jesus comes into his kingdom. We all have wants and desires. It's not a bad thing. This is how we're made. But it comes down to what do we desire? And are we willing to have our desires transformed so that we desire the things that will give us freedom in life and also enable us to give that to others as well? Desire that's based upon a faulty vision, a lack of true perspective, that's desire that will be self-serving or destructive. Now, three times in this section of Mark, going back, you know, go back a couple of chapters, three times Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be turned over to the authorities and will be killed. He'll suffer. The first time he says this, Peter, what does he do? Peter says, no way. No way. That's not going to happen. The second time after Jesus declared his coming suffering, the disciples debate among themselves about who's the greatest. And after the third declaration, James and John approach Jesus privately, and they demand positions of privilege and power on Jesus' right and left. You see a theme here? I mean, they have no idea what he's talking about. It's like, blah, 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 blah. They, they just keep going on with what they think it ought to be about. They hear it. They're in his presence. They've seen the miracles, but they can't conceive of the coming suffering and death of their teacher. They're not really listening. But then, would we do any better? It's pretty bodacious, isn't it, to ask for such a thing? Do what we ask you, whatever it is. <laughs> That's the kind of thing a child says when they come to a parent, you know? Dad, I want you to promise you're going to do what I'm just going to ask you right now. Well, what are you going to ask me? <laughs> well, you promise first. 
You know, these, these, these brothers are out there, right? I mean, remember, Luke tells us they were ready to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans that opposed them. Jesus called them sons of thunder. These guys were not shrinking violets. Jesus, give us what we want, and here's what it is. The other disciples, when they heard about it, they were furious. But it may be because they didn't ask first. Even after all this time, Jesus' closest followers didn't grasp that what passed for honor and glory in God's kingdom was totally opposite to what they had anticipated. It turns out Jesus' call was not to power and privilege, but to downward mobility. Not to be in first place, but in last. See, they got it wrong once again. Jesus had already told them. He wasn't keeping secrets. But their expectation for what the Messiah would do and be was so strong, was so embedded in their understanding that they didn't hear what Jesus had been saying all along. Jesus had not come to take up his position among the elite, but to identify with the poor, the pariah, the powerless. We're pretty far removed from this now. We have a couple thousand years, and we think we've learned the lesson pretty well. That we know what Jesus' values are, we would never make the mistake that the disciples made, would we? But still, we often get it wrong. And I think we need some humility around the expectations that we have of God's kingdom. We still want special places of privilege. We still think the message of the gospel is about prosperity. Of course, we wouldn't say it that way, but deep down, we cling to the idea that those who follow Jesus are always winners, never losers at least in the eyes of the world, and that we deserve special access to worldly power. This is a, a dark temptation for us, just as it was for the disciples. Now, it's certainly possible Jesus' followers will find themselves in amazing places of opportunity and authority and prestige. We know that. Proverbs says those who are skilled in their work and in their wisdom would stand before kings. But that's not to be our goal. Or Jesus may need, to, may, need to, may need to say to us, you don't know what you're asking. You don't have a clue. We've often gotten this wrong, our desire in misplaced locations. Howard Thurman observed that it cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful and against the weak and oppressed. This despite the gospel. We often get it wrong. And because of that, I, I'm concerned that we're losing a whole generation of people who see the church as irrelevant. Those who grew up in the church, went to Christian college, committed their lives to something they really believed in, only to feel that that promise has been betrayed. They weigh the church and its desires against the teachings of Jesus, and they ask of us, what were you thinking? I hear this over and over again from pastors and parishioners, and I talk to young people, those who, who used to be in our midst or in the midst of other churches. This is really happening. We risk losing an entire generation because we still want to sit in places of power. You see, we still can all too easily miss what Jesus is up to. So they asked the question of Jesus. He asked a question in return to James and John. What did he ask? He says, can you drink the cup I will drink? 
Can you be baptized with my baptism? And their easy answer, sure. (laughs) Well, he's speaking of the suffering that he would endure. His betrayal, his journey to the cross. Suffering marks the ministry of Jesus. And it's what enables him to carry the load of our sin and to identify with the suffering of the world, bringing his light, life, and hope. Isaiah speaks about the one who be marked by suffering and would do so for the sake of others. And the church, in turn, then sees Jesus in this description of Isaiah's suffering servant, about whom Hebrews says, he learned obedience through what he suffered and became the source of eternal salvation because of it. See, it's not privilege and prestige that saves. It's struggle. It's humility. It's surrender. And every time one of us faces suffering, or hardship, we have an opportunity to learn a little more clearly what that's about. And it can do a work in us. It can transform. You know people who have suffered much, and and I do too, and they either become bitter, or there emerges kind of a solemn beauty around their lives that communicates the gift of what they endured, and then their ability to offer that gift to others. I think about certain people here in this congregation who have suffered and that they've offered that suffering up to God and it's been transformed. Loss is still loss. Hardship is still hardship. But it's made different when it's lived with the presence of the one who suffered on our behalf. The psalm of trust that we we said today. I mean, so much trust in it. And, And what's the response of God? I will be with you in trouble. I will be with you in trouble. Author and New York Times columnist David Brooks noted that profound suffering can often lead to a sense of calling and purpose. He said people who have suffered almost always have this sense of calling. When people lose a child, they don't say, well, I had two years where I had low pleasure. I should compensate now by going to a lot of parties so I can get high pleasure and balance off my account. They don't say that, he says. They want to turn the suffering into holiness so they create a foundation or they transform their lives. Brooks says people don't heal from suffering. They're transformed. You see, the values change. The way people who suffer look at the world changes. What they consider as success is transformed. They can approach Jesus' words that the greatest must be the servant and the first must be servant of all. I think this passage is really, it really speaks to us today because it offers us the hope that the suffering that has been experienced over the last two years can be a gift. It can lead to transformation when given to Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And you know, we can be a church. We are a church. I, I pray and I hope that's not chasing significance, but chasing faithfulness, willing to walk with the suffering, willing to walk with those who are unseen. Recently, I spent time with two friends. They have poured their lives into ministry for 10 years. And now, due to the pandemic and other factors beyond their control, that ministry is dying. And they're making the hard decision to close the doors. You know, that could be a time of shame for them. Feeling like they failed. Maybe they could have done something different or better. Maybe something is wrong with them. They're suffering. 
Yet as I sat with them and heard them recall the many gifts that God had given during those years and the work in people's lives that God had carried out, I knew they were not after success, but faithfulness. And I know God will continue to bring fruit from their obedience in the years to come. Archbishop Charles Chaput said, Suffering can bend and break us, but it can also break us open to be the persons God intended us to be. It depends on what we do with the pain. If we offer it back to God, He will use it to do great things in and through us because suffering is fertile. It can grow a new life. I hope you're able to hear Laurie Nelson's story this morning of her own journey and her own journey of, of some suffering in family and, I, and, and also how she's come through that and the Lord has been healing. And if you didn't hear it, go back and watch it. It's going to be online. It is online and you can see it. Because part of what that suffering can grow in us is new desire. Desire in the direction of God's best for us. It will take time, maybe a lot of time, to walk through this suffering over the last months we've had and know how it will change us. My prayer is that it will open us even further to God's growth, to growth in us and God's Spirit. And that the things we want, the things we want as a community, as a church, will more and more align with what God wants for us. James and John. Let's go back to those guys. They were changed. They were. They were changed. James was the first disciple to be martyred. He indeed drank the cup. He indeed underwent the baptism of suffering. And John, he was the last disciple to die. And John, as we know through his writings, became what uh, he's, he's become called the apostle of love. I mean, this man of thunder who wanted to incinerate the Samaritans, <laughs> he had his desire transformed by walking with Jesus, by going through his own times of suffering and isolation. And we know the transformation because he wrote this. He wrote this. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, 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 is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity he also wrote this, for this is the original message we heard. He finally got it, right? We should love each other. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.